another pot of coffee is brewing and it's late enough that I have an excuse to add a little bit of something more grown up to it. My fifth cup is almost finished. Yep, it's gone up since last week. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and most importantly, and probably most obviously, caffeine fiend. Things are definitely heading for change, again, in the UK. Lockdown number two, bonfire night without the chance of spending time with family to eat pizza while trying to avoid getting glove wool in the toppings as you watch a load of loud fireworks burst to life in the sky over the local pier. Okay, not everyone has a local pier, I know. So... This week, I'm going to be talking about a DCOM that actually has a reason to include songs, though sometimes really, and talking about a book that shares the same musical themes, though it's more adult in nature. I will also be giving you a quick rundown of new film releases on UK streaming services, so if you're looking for Christmas-themed content, then definitely head over to Netflix. And, of course, I will be giving you a mental health update. To paraphrase on an old Chinese curse, we live in interesting times. And with the UK heading into yet another lockdown from this coming Thursday, it's definitely a curse. But before that, it's time for yet another instalment of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. I seem to have been lucky this week. There's no murder in this dream, and yep, I was shocked at that too. However, a YouTube influencer appears in it, as well as a person who was once a friend that I haven't actually seen in quite a few years. I have apparently travelled back in time a little bit, only 12 or 13 years or so, because I'm living in my nan's house. I'm not sure if this is from before she died or after she passed, but I am so familiar with everything about the place, from the blue wallpaper on my bedroom walls to the way that the bathroom door always used to stick. Seriously, if you wanted to actually shut the bathroom door, you had to lift it a little and then pull it closed, otherwise it would just stick completely and you'd be completely stuffed, especially if there were people in the house who didn't realise that singing in the bathroom actually meant you were using it. Oh, And I should probably add that I left this house when my grandmother passed away in 2008. I was very kindly evicted by my mum and her two sisters just one day after she passed away. Anyway, less of that. I leave the house and I walk in the direction of the vets, though I have got no animals with me. And I'm on my way there when I bump into a friend I haven't seen in probably 18 months, maybe two years. This in real life, obviously. We start walking together past the vets and the local pub and the tiny but very, very good fish and chip shop. Seriously, their fish and chips are fantastic. And it's only when we've been walking for about half an hour that I think to ask her where we're going. My friend just shrugs and we continue on the walk. The sky is getting really dark when we finally arrive outside a hairdresser's and this is where the train gets so random. One light is on inside and someone is standing, staring at a mirror with a pair of scissors in her hands and she's trimming her fringe, or if you're in the US, that's bangs. We walk in and my friend sits down in the chair and the hairdresser just starts highlighting without a single word being exchanged. As my friend's hair is processing, both of them, the hairdresser and my friend, look at me and say, so what do you want done? 
I've just had my hair done. So I shake my head and say that everything is fine. At which point both of them look at me again with their foreheads furrowed and sort of half sneer before the hairdresser goes into the back room to do whatever it is they do there. And if you're a hairdresser, what do you do in the back room in the salons? Is it only where you mix your colour or do you have a coffee machine? If you have a coffee machine, can you bring me a cup, please? Anyway, my friend just completely ignores me and that, given everything else, is completely random. After about an hour, my friend's hair is finished. It's blonde with bright bubblegum pink highlights you try saying that two times fast and they look really strange as she's wearing her uniform she's a paramedic we then continue walking and every once in a while she stops to look at me and says things about my hair asking me if I'm absolutely sure I don't want to go back and get it looked at maybe get a little cut or something At some point, the landscape completely changes and I suddenly find myself with my friend, who I'm starting to think isn't really that much of a friend, talking to Brad Mondo. Please send help. I think I'm watching too many YouTube hair fails. He gets me a cup of tea. What's this? Tea? Hasn't he heard my podcast? He then starts to look at my hair. Before long, I find myself staring back at a totally different person in the mirror. I have platinum blonde hair. Our boy Mondo definitely loves his platinum blondes, with ends of the most stunning teal colour. As much as I want to hate it and say it isn't me, I actually really love it. I'm still staring at myself in the mirror when my alarm goes off and I wake up. Yay for having felt to wake up to go to work. As we're talking about sleep and waking, I know that I have mentioned several times I have massive problems with headaches when I wake up. That has actually improved over the last week, ever since I got a Wi-Fi controlled light bulb for my bedroom. It's multicoloured and hooks up to the equipment that will not be named because it will start talking to me. And I don't want to have a conversation with it while I'm on here. It comes on slowly in the mornings. I've set it down to 1% at night. And come the morning, it slowly fades in over 15 minutes before my alarm goes off. So it's like I'm waking with the sunrise. Oh, and it's been so good. I actually had another really detailed dream this week but I'm going to keep that one back just in case my sleeping plan actually does a wonder and fails me. This week, I am doing a double feature. Well, in that everything I'm talking about entertainment-wise is focused on music. Poets, geniuses, revolutionaries... Lemonade Mouth has been called all of these things, but the real story, the story of how our band came to be, is a mystery to them all. I wonder if they'd believe it if I told them that it all started right here. Cue detention sign. Breakfast club much? The five central characters of this film are in their junior year of high school, which I'm guessing, as I'm not in a US high school, makes them 16. Stella, a rebel without a cause apart from the desire to wear stupid t-shirts, is played by Hayley Kiyoko, who some may recognise from a short-lived CSI spin-off called CSI Cyber. Wen is played by Adam Hicks, who unfortunately disappeared after being charged with a series of armed robberies. He also shot himself in the leg and was arrested for battery, so I very much doubt he's going to be up for a reunion. Mo is the 
Indian girl who has to live up to her family's expectations and you may recognize her if you have watched the recent live action Aladdin it's Naomi Scott who plays Princess Jasmine and she definitely seems to like reboots as she's also starred in the new Power Rangers and Charlie's Angels. Blake Michael plays Charlie the drummer. His credits are very few and far between, though he has also added director, composer and writer to his IMDb credits since 2011. The last member of the group is played by Bridget Mendler. Her character's name is Livia and she's probably the most loyal of the Disney child stars. She went on to play leads sort of lead in one and lead in another Disney Channel series, The Wizards of Waverly Place and Good Luck Charlie. Anyway, back to the story. Detention is held in the basement and the detention monitor, Miss Resnick, played by Tisha Campbell-Martin, who has actually got credits that surprised me going back to the 1986 Steve Martin version of Little Shop of Horrors, is focused on the music programme at the school, which is pretty logical really since she is the music teacher. Stella is a guitarist from a family of geniuses. She never feels as though she fitted in. She's angry at her parents who moved her halfway across the country after the start of the school year, putting her in an awkward situation, trying to fit in somewhere new. Wen's embarrassed, his dad is dating a younger woman, and Wen feels as though he's being ignored and sidelined by his dad, as the girlfriend is that much more important. Charlie is obsessed with his drums, His parents want him to play soccer and he's not interested or good at it. That was his brother's thing and he really wishes that his parents would let him be himself instead of trying to make him fit in the wrong mould. Mo is the only daughter in an Indian family. Her parents want her to be a success and this means that all they focus on is her getting a good strong GPA. As her father drops her off at school that morning... He tells her that she needs to be asking for extra credit work so she can improve her grades before college. Now, I know that college is important here, university, same, same. But to tell someone that this is all they need to focus on is probably going to cause more problems than it's worth in the long run. Olivia is... (laughs) always the last and she's the last to be seen she is a bit of a klutz as well as being incredibly shy when we first meet her she is running late for school she drops her books by the bike rack as she's just locked her bike up but everyone ignores her when she asks them to help her pick up her stuff having seen the exchange between mo and her dad it's quite easy to predict that she's going to be just a little bit rebellious as i've said earlier The minute you start focusing on one thing with a child, that's when it starts to go wrong. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the most well-behaved person on the planet, there is still going to be that little bit of, seriously, you tell me this one more time, I'm going to do something else. And that is what Mo does. The moment she arrives at school, she heads to the girls' toilets and changes into clothes that would never be considered appropriate by her very traditional parents. Leaving the toilets, she bumps into her boyfriend, Scott, Bearing in mind, her dad has also told her, no, no boys, you are too young. Her boyfriend is played by Nick Rue. And I have to say, it was annoying me so much. I was watching this and I kept on saying, I know his face from somewhere. Where do I know him from? Then I looked him up on IMDb and discovered that he was the best friend of the lead in the ABC series, Jane by Design. 
He pushes her to skip class as he tells her it's not important and there's no way they're going to get caught. So this is when the tale of how they all ended up in detention starts. Stella, being the new girl, is being given a bit of a talk about the school and how it runs, all of the rules and what is acceptable by the principal, Brennigan. He's a rule follower. And I have to say, I was pretty impressed with the actor they got to play him. They definitely didn't skimp when it came to some of the cast, and Brennigan is one of them. He's played by Christopher McDonald, who has been in so many things. His contact list is probably one you definitely want to get hold of. He was in Greece too with Michelle Pfeiffer and was also a part he also played a part in Thelma and Louise. Apparently, he is one of Hollywood's most prolific actors with over 100 film credits. That's just film credits to his name. So, Brennigan is showing Stella how he ensures that rules are always followed in the school with a massive and very comprehensive CCTV system when he notices Mo and Scott skipping classes. Oh, and I also should have mentioned that Brennigan kind of reminds me a little bit of Mr. Vernon, the teacher who monitored detention in the breakfast club livid that his rules are being broken and likely also just a little bit irritated by the way that Stella was already acting she is definitely not doing herself any favors in already being a troublemaker on her first day Brennigan catches Mo and Scott he tells Mo that he won't tell her dad and instead gives her detention however Mo is not amused when she goes to find out that Scott has been let off with a warning because he's a soccer star and also the lead guitarist for the school's favoured band, Mudslide Crush. Wen is in history class waiting for his turn to present a report when he discovers that his homework has been accidentally swapped out with Sydney's. That's his dad's girlfriend. She's studying photography at college. He's just about to flip out. At least... That's how it seems to me. And I have to say, he has a very, very short temper. I don't know if that's the cliche of the fact that he's got red hair, but he has inc- an incredibly short temper. And when Sydney arrives to hand him his assignment, having realised what happened, and I don't understand why they wouldn't put their homework in different coloured folders. It would have solved all of their problems he's furious especially when he discovers that everybody in the class male at least is drooling at the sight of Sydney he yells calling his teacher stupid ding 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 detention anyone Olivia likes to hide she hates being with people or at least prefers her own company instead of being in class she's reading a book in one of the janitor's closets around the school and accidentally knocks over some of the brooms just as Brennigan is is going past on his segue and I have to just say he looks like a total tit on the thing he hears the noise opens the door and shocker (laughs) Olivia is given detention for skipping classes Charlie is at soccer tryouts but he's not proving to be as good as they expect, given the fact that his brother was so talented. The guys on the team are yelling at him and mocking the fact that he's not his brother, which is frustrating even if you aren't making an effort. Charlie wants to make his parents happy, but this is not the way to do it by making himself miserable. One of the other players someone called Ray, who you will unfortunately get to know a bit better later on, is incredibly sarcastic and mouthy. 
shocker. And annoys Charlie so much that Charlie picks up a soccer ball, handball, (laughs) and throws it. Unfortunately, it hits the coach in the head. Yep, you guessed it. Detention. Later that afternoon, a school assembly is held in the new gym, which has been built courtesy of the sponsorship of a soft drink. And this is, to me, quite surprising, given how schools are constantly saying, we need our students to eat healthier. But maybe that's just in the UK. They are all waiting for something to happen. Brennigan is standing there posing for photos with the CEO of the soft drink company. And a group of cheerleaders come up into the bleachers and tell Stella that she has to move. She shows no signs of doing their bidding because why would she? And it's when they start talking about her that Stella realises she has to stand up for herself. So she stands up in the middle of the bleachers and instead of saying something to the students who've picked on her, she makes a massive spectacle of herself showing off the shirt that Brennigan told her she wasn't allowed to display so she'd been wearing a jacket all day. And many of the students applaud her, those that aren't in the elite privileged cliques. But I guess you already know where this one is headed. Yep, detention. At the end of the school day, the five kids head down to the basement with their detention slips. It's not only the dingy and depressing location where they're going to spend the next hour and a half, but it's also where all the clubs that aren't soccer and other sports hang out. Everything from the school newspaper to ballet, mathletes, Shakespeare and drama. Actually, anything that Brennigan doesn't like and considers irrelevant. Right by the door for their detention class, which is also where the new music room is going to be, there's a drinks machine for Mel's Lemonade. No, it doesn't really exist. The cans look a little bit like a drink that was sold in rare locations in the UK called Glinter. I was sure when I saw it I had actually seen clear cans previously. So if you know of any other brand that has them, let me know. But when I searched, this was the only product that showed up. We also see a collage of all of the detention attendees buying a can from this machine. Miss Resnick tells the students that she's going to try and sort something out with regard to the leaking pipes in the detention stroke music room and asks them to clean up while she's gone. It's the rhythm of leaking pipes that start to invade their routine while Charlie is playing his drumsticks. Mo picks up a cello, Wen goes behind the piano and Stella finds a guitar. Well, they're in a music room, so why wouldn't they? And then Olivia starts to sing. Isn't it just amazing that these people have never worked together before or in most cases have actually never met, yet they all know this song? Oh, And none of them are actually playing their instruments. This, as someone who has played musical instruments, frustrates me just a tiny bit when you see the fact it's quite obvious that he's not, that Wen isn't playing the piano. Stella is not strumming the guitar properly. And Mo is most certainly not playing that cello. Miss Resnick arrives back at that moment and starts to tell the students how talented they are. She's overjoyed that their band is incredible and they were meant to play together. In fact, she actually encourages them to enter Rising Star, which is a talent competition where the winners will get a record deal. It will also show Brennigan, as far as Resnick is concerned, that music is more important than he gives it credit for. 
initially none of the students want to get involved for whatever reason whether it's classes staff or just don't want to in Olivia's case I don't sing she has chronic stage fright when can't because he's the only one that initially wants to do it they're all defeatist but Resnick appeals to their feelings and tells them that they deserve to be heard. Detention finishes at that point and they all go their separate ways. Olivia gets home and starts trying to feed her sick and elderly cat Nancy. Wen gets home and his dad asks him to go for a horse ride with them, but Wen says he doesn't want to. In a way, I get so frustrated with him, he's acting like a pissy idiot. Okay, so you don't like your for dad's girlfriend, but don't cut off your nose to spite your face. I've said it before and I will say it again. When you find out why he's angry at his dad moving on, you will also be just a little bit pissy. Mo gets home and starts doing her violin scales, practicing a piece of very staid and classical music. However, the moment her dad leaves the room, she starts to play something just that tiny bit more rock popish. And she's happy. When Charlie gets home, he starts practicing his drums. His mum, of course, is immediately on him about soccer and how tryouts went. And he has no idea how to tell her that he didn't make it onto the team, but instead ended up in detention. He is definitely and very obviously frustrated that they only want to make him into a clone of his perfect older brother. When you witness Stella with her family, it's very clear that she acts the way she does because she wants to stand out. Her twin younger brothers are geniuses who create and make their own robotic toys. Her dad is a geneticist and her mum works in big business. Stella feels as though she's being left behind and that she's invisible. However, this, for some reason, becomes more about making a lot of noise and causing problems for everyone than anything else. After dinner, having made a point about how she wants to be heard and to make a difference, Stella starts sending messages to everyone, asking them to meet about the possibility of starting a band. Initially, not one of them is keen. However, it ends up being decided on the toss of a coin. I have to admit that when it didn't all gel immediately, I was surprised and I had to check that I was actually watching a decom. Since when do things go wrong with the setup? Sure, they start to go wrong at the end because there has to be some kind of antagonism, there has to be a twist, but not when it's all meant to be totally smooth. When they finally perform their first song in the basement, it all works perfectly, even though it's a new song that no one has practiced before. And here, I have to add, I know that Bridget Mendler is a performer. She's performed on stage. She's a singer. But seriously, the way she holds her mic makes me wince just a bit. It's at this point that Stella announces she has some news for them. She's arranged it with Brennigan so that their band will open for Mudslide Crush at the Halloween Bash. It's a big deal, even though Olivia feels sick at the thought because there's no way she can perform on stage. After rehearsals, Mo goes to see her boyfriend. And this is really weird for me. She's not allowed out. Her parents are incredibly strict. Yet somehow she's able to go out and not tell anyone where she's gone. She Okay, so she probably lies. But at the same time, if they're that strict, they wouldn't let her go out in the evenings anyway. Anyhow, she goes to see her boyfriend, Scott. And it appears that Mudslide Crush have been informed that their act is being cut short because another band is taking half of their set. 
Ray. Remember, I have mentioned him and he is a jerk. He's bad-mouthing whoever it is who's cutting their set short, furious that anyone would dare to try and take some of their airtime. Scott joins in, not realising that the band he's bad-mouthing is actually Moe's. But to be honest, I don't think that it would have mattered it would have mattered if he had known. He refers to them as nobodies, and it's at that point that Mo tells him she's in that band and playing bass. And he's incredibly dismissive. He tells her that if she wants to be in a band, she can be back up for him. He's a pig. He says that he doesn't want her band to come between them. Part of my brain is saying, is he gaslighting her? When you see their performance, you realise that Mudslide Crush is actually almost a bad facsimile of the Beastie Boys. And I don't think that they were mainstream in 2010s. The next day when they arrive at school, Stella and Wen notice that they're being glared up by everybody. Apparently, this is because Ray and the other members of Mudslide Crush made it very clear who was in the band cutting their Halloween bash set short. Mo is being treated like absolute shit by her boyfriend. He's pissed that she's in the band and he isn't returning her calls. They're in the dining room when Ray, Scott and his sucker buddies start to pick on Livia. Of course, Brennigan arrives and the misfits get the blame. It's also when they get their name appropriately. Stella is furious that Olivia is being picked on. She takes a huge gulp of the can of Mel's lemonade that she's been carrying around in her bag and sprays it at Ray. He calls her Lemonade Mouth when he tells Brennigan what happened and the band Lemonade Mouth is born. Later that day, after school, Wen turns up at Olivia's house. Stella apparently suggested that they work together to write some songs for the band. He sees Nancy and talks about how old she is. Olivia goes silent watching her cat. It turns out that Nancy is the last thing Olivia has left of her mother. And when when asks her, God, that's a mouthful. And when when asks her about her dad, she changes the subject. What's the story there? Did he leave? We don't find out very much about their family situations directly until later on the two are singing together when they nearly kiss and it's so cute but at the same time I still find myself not warming to Wen as a character his dad is happy and has moved on we don't know what the situation is with his mother but he is being a spoiled git and he's not a baby even his younger sister has accepted things so why can't he Just when things start to flow well, the five arrive for a rehearsal in the basement only to discover that the lemonade machine they all bonded over is scheduled for removal. They go to report this massive error to the principal, but it turns out that the machine should have been removed months ago as it's for a brand competing with the school sponsors. The badness doesn't end there. When arrives home to find his dad moving Sydney's stuff in, It turns out, during this conversation, you discovered that his mum actually left the family and his dad has asked Sydney to marry him. 
Ray tells Mo that he has something to show her and takes her up to the weight room at school where Scott is making time with one of the cheerleaders. It seems that now they know who the other band is that has performance time on Halloween, they are going to do their best to make sure everyone is off their game. Are all teenage boys assholes or is it just them? It's the night of the Halloween bash. Things move very, very quickly in this film. I think you'll you'll start to see. It's the night of the Halloween bash and the band are panicking as Olivia hasn't shown up to the performance. Ray goes to speak with Brennigan, sensing that things are going to start going his way, gloating that Lemonade Mouth won't be performing as they are short A lead singer. In an effort to calm Olivia's nerves, Stella finds her in the bathroom and gives her and the rest of the band a can of Mel's Lemonade. And it appears that's enough to eliminate most of her nerves, or at least enough to get her on stage. For a while, all the band can hear are jeers from the audience. And as you get a glimpse of them, you can see the mean cogs turning in Ray's mind. He is going to be an absolute jerk-off, and he makes sure that they are aware he doesn't like them, even if they are good. However, it doesn't take long for most of the audience to start responding to the set. Stella uses the band performance as a way to broadcast what is going to happen to the lemonade machine at school, even going so far as to pass out cans around the audience. She also takes this opportunity to comment on the way that those who don't fit into the elite groups are treated. It's incredibly interesting that we rarely see these five performing together, yet their set is perfectly choreographed. Wow, I really do wish that when I was at school performing, we hadn't had to rehearse every single night for five months. They obviously have found a trick. Brennigan is horrified that they are protesting the deals he's making for sports, and he ends up shutting off the light and sound so the band can no longer perform. The next school day, the party happened the previous Friday, Brennigan summons the band and shows them how unhappy he is with the way that they've behaved. The school dance was not a place to protest and he tells them that they will never be able to perform on school grounds again. But their fans aren't going to give up. It seems, wow, they got famous overnight. I wish that my YouTube channel had done the same thing when I ran it. During class, their sound engineer from the Halloween Bash tells Wen that he has been selling their CDs because people have been requesting them. All around school, the girls are getting recognised and people are putting up signs showing their support for Lemonade Mouth. Feeling despondent, the five go to the local pizzeria Dante's and they are at a loss. They've been told they can no longer perform at school and that was the only place they knew to perform. However, it turns out Stella and Wen have both spoken with the owner of Dante's and he wants them to perform at the pizzeria a regular gig every Thursday night. Of course, it's not going to be easy for any of them. Initially, Mo says, no way. Scott eats there and she doesn't want to see him. Charlie tells them that he can't keep on lying to his parents, saying that he's at soccer practice they're eventually going to want to witness him in a match. Olivia's reason is nothing to do with lies or exes. She simply cannot face the idea of performing on stage again. It's just too nerve-wracking. They walk out of Dante's having decided, no, we're not going to do it. 
when Stella turns and sees a massive poster of them performing Halloween Bash above the door. And it's enough to persuade them all that this is workable, that they matter and people want to hear what they have to say. Of course, the next thing you see is them performing. Mo is climbing on tables, sitting on serving stations and ends up sitting, no, standing in her shoes in the middle of a conveniently cleared table while people are waiting for their food. It's definitely not the most hygienic performance and not sure I would be massively happy with it. It's at this point that you just know something is going to screw it all up, especially where Mo is concerned. Either her dad is going to find out what she's doing and ground her, or she is going. her grades are going to suffer and her parents are going to ground her for that. Obviously, Charlie's parents are going to find out that he's not playing soccer when they suddenly ask if they can attend a game. The band are close, but they still have yet to share everything. They aren't being honest with each other. When they discover that Olivia's cat Nancy has passed away, they all head over to keep her company. And it's while they are cloud gazing that the truth comes out. Olivia finally tells everybody that her dad is in prison and she's humiliated by this fact. She never writes to him and she doesn't know what to say. And she's never visited him either. Oh, and look, cue another impromptu song, which then turns into a performance at Charlie's house. And when you see his house, you think, oh, that's uh, that's the perfect movie set. He clearly comes from money, which makes you wonder why he doesn't fit in better with the upper echelons in the school. But then he's not his brother. Scott tries to persuade Mo that he misses her and she tells him that she's changed, that the music is part of who she is and he has to accept that. She forgives him but tells him that sorry isn't going to fix everything. One morning, Wen is cleaning his teeth when Sydney interrupts him and tells him he has to hear what's playing on the radio. It turns out that it's one of Lemonade Mouse songs that the sponsor of Rising Star heard and decided to play. He immediately calls Olivia and the fact that he calls her rather than calling anyone else tells you the way that his interest is going. Just as things start to get better, things again get worse. Mo gets sick, Ray starts to badmouth them as they're performing at Dante's which starts a fight and gets them fired. Charlie is really angry that things didn't go his way when he asked Mo out, that he breaks one of his drumsticks during a routine and then slams his hand in the drawer where his spares are kept, breaking three fingers. Wen is helping his dad to hang a photo and a corner of the frame slams into his eye, giving him a black eye, really bad bruising and blurred vision. Wen also has a huge row with Olivia when she tells him that he's being ridiculous about his dad and Sydney. She'd absolutely love to be in his situation. She's got nobody. The cat was the last tie to her mum. And she did all of this for him, the band, the songs, the singing, everything. She is so angry at him that she shouts enough and she loses her voice, probably damaged her vocal cords somewhat when she screamed. And as if that wasn't bad enough, Stella arrives at school just as the lemonade machine is being loaded onto a truck. The rest of the band arrive when she calls them for reinforcements. And just as Stella is manhandled away from the truck and the band try and stop the two removal men, the police arrive and the band get arrested. While they're in a cell, 
the five have a bit of a disagreement and then find their rhythm again, starting to play without the benefit of instruments. Olivia is bailed out by her grandmother. Wen is bailed out by Sydney, and he actually hugs her and realises that he's not as hard done by as he keeps on making out. Olivia really got through to him. Mo is collected by her parents and her dad is so disappointed that he walks away. She tries to tell him that she's never going to be the person he wants her to be and she doesn't know where she fits in. Amazingly, at this point, you realise that her voice is so much better than it was when she was coughing, spluttering and choking not 10 minutes earlier in the film. Charlie is collected by his brother who is home from college. He tells him that he needs to be honest with their parents if soccer isn't for him and also that music is the path that he wants to follow. He also tells Charlie that he's not the perfect son. His grades suck and his parents are going to be so disappointed. He has so much to live up to and he's struggling. Stella, (laughs) the one who thinks that she's always invisible, is collected by her mum, the same woman she is sure never sees her. So much of what Stella does is to get attention. Her mum apologises to her for being so distracted, but she's incredibly proud of the daughter she has and everything she has achieved. She walks out of the police station with her mum to see her whole family is there. All of them are planning to watch the band performing in Rising Star. Mudslide Crush is performing when they arrive, and they have got such egos. I don't know if it's the words of the songs that they sing or the attitudes, but I do blame a lot of the fact that they think they are it on Brennigan and the fact that he panders to their egos, especially where sport is concerned. Watching from the wings, Wen says that Mudslide Crush, and I really do wish I understood where these names came from, is really good. Okay, clearly I do think of music very, very differently. Ray then walks off stage and proves himself to be such a dickhead when he tells Stella to top that. Of course, thanks to their various injuries, Wen can't play, Olivia has no voice, Mo is coughing like mad. Again, when her voice was absolutely fine when they just got out of jail and Charlie's fingers are broken so playing the drums is really difficult. In short, it is a disaster. Charlie gets up from behind the drum kit and walks off. At the same time, Scott walks onto the stage, having told Ray exactly where to go. And I have to say, it's nice to see that he isn't the complete jerk he was in the very beginning. It's almost as though he had this flipping personality when he realised that Mo was worth so much more than a stupid band rivalry. The band is stuck. They can't perform. They have no idea what they're doing. And they are blinded by the lights. And then a girl in the audience starts to sing, joined by others. The group stand there watching the audience sing and dance while they do nothing. And this drives me nuts. Logically, they don't win the competition. They couldn't. They didn't perform more than a few cursory notes. However, things then start to pick up. Scott and Mo seem to find some common ground. Charlie realises that Mo was never for him, but the one for him is out there somewhere. Wen goes to visit Olivia and brings her a kitten, when at this point he finally admits he was wrong about Sydney. And the film almost ends at a wedding, that of Sydney and Wen's father. Stella is sitting with 
the friends and family, as are the rest of the band. And I have to say, it felt really weird that they weren't all sitting together. It turns out that Stella's sitting next to one of Wen's dad's old college friends, who just happens to be the owner of, you guessed it, Mel's Lemonade. Wow, talk about a small world. You don't see it happening, of course, but somehow they managed to persuade Mel to sponsor the music and drama program at the school. Either he uses a lot of builders or we flash forward without noticing it. I'm not sure this is Disney. It could be magic. They could have (laughs) dwarves building it for all I know or little fairies with magic dust. But they have a massive theatre which looks incredible and Miss Resnick is overjoyed. Of course, the minute a camera flashes, Brennigan has to be there to take credit when it had jackal to do with him. And though I said at the beginning he reminded me of Mr. Vernon, the further on I got with the film, the more I realised he reminded me of someone else, but I can't put my finger on it. So my summary is he's a money-hungry asshole. It turns out that this entire film was actually a letter Olivia writes to her dad. So she does finally write to him after she's managed to almost exorcise the demons of guilt that she feels because her dad's in prison. She finishes the letter with the news that the band is going to be playing at Madison Square Garden. So they went from a basement to one of the biggest stadiums in the world. (laughs) Nice. This is a performance we are then treated to, a performance that lacks the charm of a wet paper bag. One of the appeals of the band was that they all played instruments, but now all the girls are performers like Atomic Kitten with the suggestive and stupid dances. So where did the band actually go? Because it became more about, I'm going to wiggle my bottom and wear a short skirt than I have talent and can play an instrument. This was not one of the better films to come out of Disney Studios in the last few years. It came out in 2011, so the year before Girl vs. Monster. And while Girl vs. Monster was a specific season film in that it was Halloween, it was based at Halloween and it was a monster movie, it had a killer soundtrack, the script was not lazy, and it seemed to have some studio value. However, Lemonade Mouth had none of this. It was awkward, uncomfortable, had no clear timeline and didn't really have much purpose. And I'm sorry if you liked it. I really am. But I am not going to be watching it again. It's going to go in the vault of Ray's never to be seen ever again films. So there we go. (laughs) That was Lemonade Mouth. Let me know if you watched it, if you liked it, if you shared any of my opinions or if you noticed anything that I didn't be very interested to find out what you think. Before I get into anything else, if you love history or you just want to find out more, have a listen to this podcast. Hello there, my name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast 
has it all. So listen to the podcast that brings the past back to the present. The Backtracker History Show, available wherever you normally get your podcasts. So head on over to listen to the Backtracker History Show, but not until you've finished listening to this. So we've talked about what I've watched this week. Well, a single film. But what is coming up on UK streaming services and is any of it worth a glance? Apparently, we've hit the start of the Christmas season, at least where Netflix is concerned. So they're bringing out their Santa jokes, their needle-shedding pine trees and snowy landscapes, all at the beginning of November. That being the case, the first film is sort of an equal opportunity holiday film, The Holiday. It seems that Emma Roberts is after the light-hearted comedy flick crown that her aunt once wore, in this holiday-themed romantic comedy that is a little dry and incredibly predictable. That said, though, if you're looking for something to watch while reading a book, look no further. This is the film to watch. You're not going to miss anything if you have to go to the toilet and you don't need to put it on pause. I have to say it looks as though last Sunday was a Christmas romance avalanche with the release of five, yeah, five Christmas themed films hitting the platform. Christmas Made to Order, My Christmas Inn, that's in with a double N, A Perfect Christmas List. Christmas Wonderland and Christmasland. So if you want to watch a Christmas romance, you will not be short of romantic comedies. You really won't. If romance, though, isn't your thing or it's too early to start thinking about Christmas, then the first four Bourne films recently arrived on Netflix, too. If you prefer to listen to people talking about them, then head over to Spy Hards and listen to their two episodes on The Bourne Identity and The Bourne supremacy they're really good love animation over the moon directed by glenn Keane, who also happened to work on several of my favorite disney films including tangled was released a couple of weeks ago it's a stunning film with a very moving storyline and an awesome soundtrack Looking for something a little bit older, then Amazon is a great place. I know that they have some new content and they also show a predilection for stacks of Christmas romances. These include Return to Christmas Creek, Christmas Encore, Pride, Prejudice and Mistletoe and Homegrown Christmas, all of which were added over the weekend. However, not quite your cup of coffee. Then you can also watch Whiplash, Die Hard, Matilda and the first Miss Congeniality, and dear good grief, the number of Christmas, Christmas, Christmas films started to make my tongue tie just a little bit. Oh, Disney, 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 how you disappoint me. And I wish it didn't. With so much content still missing from the UK version of the platform, you'd have thought they would be adding new content pretty constantly. However, this week sees the arrival of no films at all. I know that I am sticking to this week with other channels, but on the 27th of November, we will finally get a chance to watch the Disney Plus original Noel with Bill Hader, Shirley MacLaine and Anna Kendrick. And I say finally because it was released in the US in November last year. So we've only had to wait a year. 
I'm going to keep it short and sweet this week because I know that I will not be alone in the stress, depression and worry by the beginning of December. The last lockdown didn't feel very hard as I'd been pushing myself through working in a crowded office day in, day out and coming home exhausted for months. I'm not sure about all introverts, but spending constant time in the company of people, doesn't matter whether they are friends, family or colleagues, can be really draining for me. The weekend is never long enough to recharge and make myself strong enough to get through another week. So I am often filled with cold or just go straight to bed the moment I walk through the front door. Being at home for months on end and unable to see friends and family was not as bad as I actually thought it would be. I know that a lot of people, especially those who thrive in the company of others, were desperate to get back to normal. And I completely understand that. For people who need the company of others, being stuck at home was bad. In fact, to hear my sister tell it, people who had families had it worse than those who were alone constantly. I'm not sure if I believe that, having spoken to a fair few people who were also alone and wanted to be in the company of other people. I have been at home now since the beginning of March, very rarely seeing others, even after lockdown number one ended. You may well be thinking, but you're a hermit, Ray. Yes, I am pretty much a hermit. However, the thought of not being able to see people isn't what's worrying me, though I would like to still be able to do the pre-Christmas gathering that has been arranged for the girls in my family. And that's now had to be cancelled courtesy of this lockdown being announced because it was supposed to happen on the 27th of November. I work in an industry that depends on people being able to get deliveries of items that are just a tiny bit bigger than a book from Amazon. By a tiny bit bigger, I mean weigh about three tonnes. Anyway, if they can't be delivered, then there is a possibility our business will suffer. We've already reduced our staff in size by six, but without a regular income, that could reduce again. I've been made redundant a total of four times. Once was during the last recession back in 2007. And let me tell you, finding a job was not easy. I ended up finding a role that paid a considerable, i.e. £7,000 a year, less, and cost me a lot more in travel. So it wasn't the best. All that said, if you are worried or stressed, in need of advice reach out. I'm not going to credit this to some politician. Instead, I am going to say in the words of Troy Bolton, we're all in this together. In fact, I could sing it. We're all in this together. And I can't remember the rest of the words. I'm sorry. That's all you're getting. Sorry for the singing. I knew that at some point I would be doing this book, or at least a book by this author, as I love her work and I think that everything I have read by her should be talked about. I really do. I think I post about it on my on my bookstagram and my more author-focused Twitter quite frequently. No, it's not another book by Margaret May, even though all of the books I have by her, including The Catalogue of the Universe and Alchemy, are fantastic. This week, I am trying to sort of tie the book in with the film. So I have turned to something just a tiny bit more grown up, though it does have a YA spin-off. The book I'm talking about is called Johnny Be Good by Paige Toon. 
This is about as far from a traditional romance as you could get. I'm not joking, it really is. In fact, the romance doesn't start happening, well, not even romance, doesn't start, nothing really starts happening until about 65% of the way through the book, according to Kindle. So I'm not sure what page that is. I'm sorry for anyone who's reading it in paperback. The main characters are Meg Stiles, a PA, and Johnny Jefferson, a troubled but incredibly talented rock star who lives in LA and goes through women like most people go through underwear. Yeah, he's actually a bit of an asshole. Shocker. I would say that you can explain away a lot of his behaviour because of his past, but that's a lie. Yes, his mother died when he was 12 and his dad was a jerk that left when he was a baby. In fact, his parents weren't married, but that doesn't mean he has an excuse for being a drug-addicted, drunken womanizer. Am I making you like him yet? No? Good. Because I don't think you should. Meg finds herself offered the job as Johnny's PA when her boss, an architect, tells his lawyer that Meg is amazing. She interviews for the role, is given it, and all of a sudden her life is pulled apart. Due to the NDA she signs, she finds that she's no longer easily able to confide in her best friend, Bess. She's barely had time to pack up her life and move before she starts the job. And then she discovers that she's working for a very handsome asshole who doesn't really care for anyone but himself. And if I'm being honest, I don't actually think he cares for himself that much either, if you consider all the things he does to himself. Not everybody is happy when they get success, and I think that is part of the message in this book. Meg is almost pulled along for the ride of her life when Johnny, high on mostly drugs and booze, goes on a world tour. He blows hot and cold, which has her all in a muddle, unsurprisingly, and as much as she tries to fight it, she discovers that she's falling in love with him, even though she knows she really shouldn't. She's been warned about it by pretty much everybody, and she's still falls into the trap. While working for Johnny, she also meets his best friend from school, a writer for NME, who is also writing Johnny's biography. Christian seems to be interested, but all the while Johnny is throwing her a little bit of attention, even though they haven't slept together, it's just too much. On the last night of his tour, Johnny goes too far with the drugs. Christian snaps and leaves, and Meg tells him that she's going to quit because she can't work for him anymore. Of course, she's only blowing hot air because the next minute she's driving him to stay far away from the limelight to help him detox. From here on, things get really messy. Meg can't stop thinking about him even when he's being a jerk, but she has made a mistake and she also can't work for him anymore. The thing is, by this point, she's almost completely alienated her best friend, Bess. Though, to be fair, Bess is actually there when Meg really needs her problem is Johnny can't take no for an answer. Christian has now swooped in and saved the day but Johnny is there lying in wait. So when push comes to shove and it actually kind of does there are fights arguments Johnny gives her a timeline and an ultimatum he'll wait for her for three months. Who is she going to choose? This is the second book that Paige Toon has written and it's not quite a sequel to her first novel Lucy in the Sky But if you've read it, you will recognise some of the characters. They get a mention, at least. Being honest, this is the first book of hers that I read. And I had to read another one right afterwards. Because though I loved the way it was written, I hated Johnny. And I still do. 
I'm still not sure to this day if he's actually meant to be the lead male or if that title goes to Christian or if there isn't really a lead male and it's all about Meg. I felt so sorry for her and part of me still believes that she should have completely walked away from both Christian and Johnny. Whichever of the two she ends up with, the other will always be in her life. Do I recommend this book? (laughs) This was something I thought about for a while. If you aren't looking for a love story of the century, then yes. Johnny almost destroys himself and he almost takes Meg with him. Though I will stress here, she drinks a bit, but she doesn't partake of anything else. And everyone ends up hurt, confused and very different to the people they were in the beginning. And I'm not sure if this is different in a good way or not. If you're looking for a love story with the same depth of character and incredible writing and also makes you cry, then I would definitely recommend you bypass Johnny Be Good for the time being. Definitely read it. It's a good book. And pick up If You Could Go Anywhere. It's another book by Page Toon, and this one is slightly more recent, having come out in 2019. Even as I've been recording this, I've been thinking about the book and film for next week. And I believe, and this is a stress, believe I have come up with a fantastic combination that sort of matches. However, if you do have any Disney Channel original movies you would like to hear me talk about, email me at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I release a new one every week normally on Tuesdays so if you like what you hear why not share it with your friends and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes and Podchaser you can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Facebook at not before coffee podcast I update on both quite a lot well I need another cup of coffee as I definitely haven't had enough so I'm going to go and put the kettle on Until next time, this is me saying farewell.